God, we thank you for this um, final Sunday this year of being able to enjoy um, learning about you and fellowshipping with each other and learning more about each other and about um, your character and your love and who you are out in nature. We thank you the rain has subsided a little bit. It's not quite as um, powerful as it was earlier. Um, we thank you for the beauty of creation, for this time together, and for a holiday weekend, which means a lot of us have some extra days off. Um, help us to enjoy that time. Help us to enjoy this time together. Um, and help what I have to share to make some sense. Amen. <laughs> um, so if um, any of you weren't here last week, and I wasn't here last week, so um, full disclosure, uh, Keenan talked about um, chapters 1 through 4 of Esther, and then I'll be talking about chapters 5 through 10, and then next week Keenan and I are going to do sort of a joint um, discussion of some of the themes and some of the, um, some of the interesting pieces about the book of Esther um, and the story. And so last week, he started by talking a little bit about like his history with the book of Esther. So I'm going to do the same thing because I think that makes sense. And then next week we don't have to waste any time on that. <laughs> um, so my feelings about Esther have changed a lot. Um, when I was a kid, uh, Esther was my favorite book of the Bible. And I would say it's pretty much for exactly two reasons. One was that it's one of only two books of the Bible that is named after a woman and that is actually like the story of a woman as compared to 38 books that are named after men. <laughs> so I did the math. 58% of the biblical um, canon has books that are named after men. 3% are books named after women. <laughs> so I think that's, like, truly that's one reason. As a young woman growing up in a very conservative Christian environment where there was a lot already um, that was sort of stereotypically prescribed about who I was supposed to be and what I was supposed to do, I craved hearing stories about strong, empowered women who like made a difference in history. Um, and those stories in the Bible are, um, I would say, more frequent than I was taught growing up, but they're still few and far between as compared to all of the men in the stories. Um, and a lot of the stories about women that we spent the most time on, at least that I remember growing up, were stories where it's like, um, you know, a woman who made really poor choices was turned around, like adulteress, and, you know, Mary Magdalene, was she a prostitute, was she not? Like, those sorts of things. Um, which is interesting because, as just a sidebar, if you look at the stories of the men who are sort of um, revered in the Bible, most of them are kind of like make really awful choices like and do really terrible things up to and including murder and um, adultery and rape and things like that. Um, but those, we still like laud them as like these amazing, wonderful men of God. But the women, it's sort of like, oh, aren't they lucky? They made these sinful choices, but Jesus loved them and they turned their lives around, you know? Um, and so I really craved hearing more about women um, who were worthy in their own right and who were powerful in their own right. Um, and Esther, at least in the reading that I was taught growing up, fit the bill, right? Like Esther is this, um, I was taught sort of this romanticized version of it where, um, you know, she's this powerful woman. Of course, at the time, I didn't know she was probably like a young teenager, like 
14, 15 maybe, sort of years old, likely. But, you know, she's a strong, powerful adult woman who, um, you know, captures the king with her beauty and they live happily ever after. But, like, that's not at all the story if you read it. And, in fact, um, reading it over several times in preparation to dig into this with Keenan was the first time I've revisited it since I've learned a little more about... Um, biblical history and context, and also since I've had um, a different theological lens, um, where, you know, in the past, terrible things like murder and genocide were like, well, as long as God's people were doing it, then it's on, you know, it's what God wanted, and it's fine, and I don't have that lens anymore. Um, I just think horrible things are horrible things, (laughs) and so it read very differently, Um, But as I said, as a kid, like, I I was excited because it was, you know, one of the few stories that had um, a woman as the main character. Um, And even the the book was titled after her. Um, And also because it seemed to be this, like, beautiful, lovely love story type thing. And um, I found myself, when I was reading it through in preparation for um, this three-week series, having a lot of, I guess anxiety isn't the right word, but like almost like pit of my stomach, like sinking feelings as I was reading the words and realizing that so much of the story is extremely painful, traumatic, awful, violent sort of narrative. Um, and that felt kind of like a kick to the gut. Like this, this story that I've loved so much um, has so much raw, awful things in it. And I, I never noticed that before. And so now I feel like my relationship to the book is more love-hate. Like I still love the fact that um, there's a book about a woman. <laughs> like I love that. I'm going to always love that. Um, and I love the fact that Esther shows courage the way that she does. And I love Esther's character, but in a different way, whereas in the past I loved Esther as this like person to aspire to in this incredible, um, empowered woman. While I, now, while I do see her as in- incredibly courageous, now I see her more as like the way that I would picture um, like a parentified teen in a really... Um, dysfunctional family who is like doing their best to to survive and showing incredible resilience despite awful things happening to them. So it's more of this love of like, oh my gosh, you are so resilient. I can't believe that you survived this, the courage you showed. I can't believe these awful things happened to you. Sort of compassionate love versus like, I want to be this person sort of love. Because like, I don't want to be Esther or in that situation at all. Um... So that's sort of where I am with Esther, but let's get into um, let's get into it. So Keenan did a really good job last week of setting up the first four chapters. Um, there's just one thing I'm going to add that he mentioned to me that he had um, not covered. That's kind of important for the last chapters. <laughs> so we're gonna uh, we're gonna talk about that quick. So in Esther two, um, there's this little vignette um, where oh my gosh, sorry, bug where, um, okay, so let me actually go back. So, you know, Esther and all of the young women of um, 
Persia are who are unmarried are pulled into this sort of like harem type place where they're getting prepared for the king for their one night where the king gets to violate them basically and then decide if they're good enough to be queen or not. Um, and in this time, the, the Bible says that um, Mordecai, who is Esther's um, cousin, it says, but who sort of adopted and raised her um, and who is her sort of patriarch, um, would come visit her every day at the gate of this like harem place and offer advice and counsel and tell her what to do basically to survive. So he's kind of coaching her through this process. And one of those days, um, when he's there, he hears two of the king's um, eunuch servants um, creating a plot to kill the king. And by the way, I'm going to go with King, if you were here last week, you've heard that the king has like a bunch of different names in different versions of the Bible. I was so glad Kenan chose to go with Xerxes because it's the easiest to pronounce. So we're going to say King Xerxes. Um, and so they, he hears this plot to, that they're going to um, try to assassinate King Xerxes. And Mordecai reports it, of course, to um, Esther. And the, the plot, they find out that the plot is true and they make sure it doesn't happen. And then um, they, the um, information about what happened is recorded in, so like there's like some scribe or something who records all of the events that happened during the king's reign. And he records that there was this plot and this you know, man named Mordecai um, knew that it was going to happen and reported it and saved the king's life. So it's like recorded, but that's pretty much all that happens. And that's kind of important for the second half of the story. So when Kenan ended last week, we were ending with the fact that Mordecai had told Esther, um, basically like that it was her responsibility to save her people um, and use that, that oft-quoted phrase, you know, maybe you were brought here for such a time as this, sort of indicating like maybe the reason um, that you were put in this position and that this happened to you is that so you can, like, so you can save the people. Um, and Keenan got into that a little bit, so I'm going to move past that. So what Esther decides to do is she says, okay, what I'm going to do is um, we are going to, I'm going to gather all these, you know, female servants, handmaids that I have. You gather all of the people in our family, in our community, and we're all going to pray, like, and fast for three days. So they have these three days of preparation of praying and fasting, um, and then she goes before the king. Um, so she gets all gussied up. <laughs> And at the beginning of chapter 5, she goes in to enter the court of the king. Now, this is uh, a life-threatening move because if the king decides he doesn't want to see her right now, basically if anyone approaches the king without being summoned, they can be executed, which I think is a pretty extreme response <laughs> to being disturbed. But that's what it was. Um, and particularly with her being a woman, um, therefore considered an object or a possession, it's like no big deal, right? Like, oh, you can just get another one. Clearly, that's what he did to get Esther. And so um, she takes this really life-threatening move, and she goes into the king, and thankfully, he extends his scepter to her, which is basically the way of the king saying, I approve of you being here. You're welcome to be in my presence. Um, so honestly, <laughs> the two things that stood out to me when I read this were, one, boy, she's lucky he was probably in a good mood. Like, what would have happened if he had had a terrible morning? And she went in. Like, this... That just seems like incredible luck. <laughs> um, and then the second thing I was thinking is, as I was really trying to immerse myself in what it would be like to be Esther, and of course, 
there's only so much I can really fathom of that. Thinking of her being probably a teenage girl, separated from her family and her community, hiding her faith, um, having a full year where she is anticipating that one of the core values of her faith and her belief is going to be violated forcefully by the king, and that if he doesn't like her, she's going to lose all opportunity to have a family of her own and to be with her family again, and she'll be sequestered in a harem to be at his disposal and called when he wants her and otherwise just there, isolated. Um, And then, you know, she has her night with the king. He's taken with her enough so that he decides she's the queen. Um, so she she gets thrust into this role that she could have no possible idea how to manage. And now, she if she had been in the harem, she maybe could have at some point been more vocal about, um, or maybe not vocal, but maybe had to hide her faith a little bit less at least I would think because she's kind of isolated in her own place she could probably do that but it chosen as the queen when she's been told by Mordecai to hide who she is she's probably anticipating now that she is having to live in a mask for the rest of her life and not be who she is and like her connection to her faith is even more diminished now um and Then she's told that she has to save her people by doing this incredibly risky move. And this incredibly risky move involves directly confronting her violator, her rapist, who could, you know, snap his fingers and she's dead. And all of her people are dead. And I was just thinking... Man, I feel like she probably had a trauma reaction. Like standing outside, you know, I don't know how much you know about trauma, but um, when you've had a traumatic experience um, and you have like post-traumatic stress disorder or some sort of trauma response, it overtakes you. And um, that often involves flashbacks, panic attacks, people can't breathe. Um, It's all-encompassing and it's overwhelming of your entire um, nervous system. And I'm just picturing what that would be like for her standing outside of the court, knowing that she was going to go address this person that she had legally no right to do, who had violated her, who had taken away everything from her, and hope that maybe he's in a good mood. So, wow. (laughs) Um, I think, honestly, just the fact that she had the courage to do that is incredible. Um, but she goes in, he, he extends his scepter, he asks her what she wants. And rather than telling him what she wants directly, she says, I'd like for you and Haman, Haman's the bad guy, if we remember, you know, to come have a, a banquet that I've prepared for you, which um, is interesting because the whole story started with the king having a banquet, right? And his queen at the time Um, not doing what she was supposed to do, not being at his beck and call, and being banished. So now Esther is inviting him to a banquet. So that's kind of interesting. And uh, and he agrees. You know, he's he's happy to do that. Um, So he he comes, he and Haman come to a banquet. And then at that banquet, the king says, okay, so we're at your banquet. What do you want? And she goes, 
come to another banquet I'm going to make for you. And this is something that's always bothered me. I've always been like, why? Why is it so like diluted? Um, and when I was like, you could, you could say that it's a narrative, um, like it's for the purpose of the narrative. You could say it's to build tension and things like that. And true, it does. Like narratively, it does. But if this is really how it went, and if she did have this like, hey, come to another banquet, my gut is she probably is just like drowning in anxiety. And like, you know, I could even picture her being ready to say what she's going to ask and then saying, oh, well, let's just, let's just have another banquet tomorrow and sort of putting it off and, and procrastinating maybe or trying to give herself more time to prepare. So I, like really there is absolutely no literature that I was able to find about why there are multiple banquets in here except that it builds tension in the narrative. I, this is just my gut. I could be wrong, but that was sort of what struck me as a possibility. So, you know, and he says, of course, yes, I'll, you know, I'll come to another banquet with you. Um, and Haman is just flying, like, right, the queen asked him to come to a banquet, and now she wants him to come to another banquet. So Haman leaves um, after that first banquet, before going to the second one, goes home, and he is just like, he's thrilled. And then... As he's leaving, he sees Mordecai, and all of that joy of being this special person that the queen called out is gone because one human being is not bowing down to him. His life is terrible. So he goes home. He, um, he brags to his family. I loved this in verse 11 of chapter 5. He brags to his family about being rich and having lots of sons. So that's fun. Um, and his relationship with the king and so on and so forth. But then he, again, um, he's complaining about Mordecai and his wife and his friends suggest that he should make basically a gallows. Um, and they say, tomorrow morning, have the king sentence Mordecai to be executed. And then you'll have a good time at the banquet. Like, he'll be off your mind. And I just think, what a leap to go from this person is bothering you to, you know, so much so that you can't enjoy this banquet to let's just have him murdered and then it'll all be good. Um, and, but Haman thought the idea was brilliant. That's what it says. Haman thought it was brilliant. So Haman um, has this um, gallows made. And what that was, just to, to add some, um, I guess, salt to the wound of the way that Persians would humiliate and kill people who were being executed, was um, it wasn't just a gallows like a hanging, which is what I was raised to believe, which is still really gruesome. It was a sharpened pole really high, and then they would put people on the top of it and they would either die by slowly being impaled, which sounds pretty terrible, or they would die by all of the birds and like creatures, you know, bugs attacking them and dehydration and um, I'm assuming probably like, um, oh, like sunstroke and things like that. Uh, so it's like gross and terrible. Um, and that's what they decide to do. That night, in between the two banquets, <laughs> It's, it's so And you have to wonder who thought of this. But anyway, so that night in between the two banquets, the king isn't able to sleep. And so what any good king does when he can't sleep is he wants to hear about all the good things he's done and all the things that have happened in his kingdom. So he calls in one of his servants to bring the book of what's happened over my life the past few weeks. And like basically reading him the, the national diary. So a servant comes in and he's reading this to him. And while he's reading it, um, they come to the port to the part that has been recorded about Mordecai um, ending a plot to kill him, and he's like, "Whoa, 
Did we honor this person who saved my life? And they're like, no, nothing was done. We just recorded it. And so um, the king is like, that's not okay. Like, we need to honor this person who saved my life. And right at that time, just on cue, Haman enters. And the king says, Haman, what would you do? What would you suggest if if there was someone that I wanted to honor who was, you know, this incredible human being, what would you want to happen? Now, Haman being Haman and being sort of narcissistic and, um, you know, who he is, um, is, oh, of course the king is going to honor me. I mean, the queen invited me to two banquets. Of course the king wants to honor me. We don't know why Haman thinks he's being honored, but he does. Um, and so he, he creates this elaborate plan. Like, this is what Haman would want to be honored. And it's things like, let's see, you know, that he should be able to wear one of the king's robes, that he should be on a horse that has, and wear the royal crown and have the noble officials like um, escort him around um, the center of the city and have people announce his entrance that this is what happens to those that the king honors. Like, so it's this grand, and we know that Haman likes displays of honor, like grand displays of honor, right? He wants everyone to bow to him. So of course he wants to be paraded through the city. And the king says, that's awesome. You're going to go do that for Mordecai. Um, Which, as you can imagine, was... I mean, I don't even know if I can imagine what it would feel like to to have Haman's mindset and think that he's building this grand ceremony for himself only to find out that this one person who is the thorn in his side, he has to do it for. But that's what happens. And he's humiliated and mortified. Um, But he does what he has to do. Probably a smart move because, as we've seen, if you don't do what the king says, you get executed pretty quickly. So he does what he's supposed to do. <clears throat> he honors Mordecai, and then my assumption is that he crawls home, like completely humiliated. And he tells his wife and all of his friends what to do. And now their advice has changed. They had originally, one night before, said, you should definitely, um, you should definitely have him murdered. And now they're like, Okay, clearly that's not going to work. Um, and there's this really interesting part where they say, if he really is a Jew, and the voice translation adds, a descendant of the nation that defeated your ancestors, then you won't succeed. You'll be destroyed. In fact, look, you're already bowing down to him. So that's quite the shift that they've made too. Um, but with a king who's um, so fickle, I can understand why they would change their opinion so quickly. Um, So right in the middle of this conversation, the eunuchs arrive to bring him to have this second banquet. He's got to be really low at this point. Like he's in this, he just had to honor this person who's a thorn in his side. And now he's got to go to this banquet that he was really excited about. And he was going to be even more excited that Mordecai was dead by that point. Um, But now he's not. He just honored Mordecai. So he goes to dinner. And the interesting thing in this chapter is they talk about um, a lot of wine. So I'm thinking Esther probably had a lot of alcohol involved purposefully. Now, hopefully she's seen him drunk before the king and knows how he responds to alcohol because we all know that people can respond different ways. We're probably lucky that this particular king doesn't get really angry. (laughs) Um, You know, it seems like he gets uh, more generous maybe. So... So he's drunk, basically. The um, Queen Esther got him drunk. And again, he says, okay, what do you want? And this is at the point where she finally says, spare my people and spare my life. And he goes, whoa, what do you mean your life and your people are in danger? Apparently, he doesn't remember the order that he placed. Even though he doesn't know um, she's Jewish yet, 
either he places a lot of orders for people to be extinguished, or he has a really short memory, because he just placed that order like not long ago. Um, but he says, who is doing this? And of course, Queen Esther says, Haman, right there. He's a terrible person, and he's trying to kill all of my people. The king gets just so angry that he has to leave the situation. He goes out to the garden. And now this is an interesting part. While he goes out to the garden, it says that Haman um, was aware that the king had already sealed his face, fate and didn't follow the king into the garden. Instead, he pleaded with Esther to spare his life. In desperation, he threw himself onto the couch where Queen Esther was sitting. That part has always struck me as strange because clearly the queen has no power. I don't know what he's expecting her to be able to do. Maybe he's just expecting that she can somehow, um, you know, that she can somehow work her wiles and convince him or something, like she was able to just now convince him to spare her people. Although we haven't heard yet that the king has approved. We just heard the king's angry. We don't know that the king's going to spare her people. Um, And the king comes back in, and he is really upset to see Haman, like, thrown on the couch of his wife, as you can imagine, um, particularly in that culture and in that time, that would be sort of a, an assaultive move. <laughs> um, and then the king says something interesting too. He says, will you even violate my queen right here in the palace where I can see you? And I think, that's interesting. Didn't you just violate like 400 women? <laughs> um, you know, but, but women were property. They were possessions, right? And so his possession, his object is being violated and he's the king and that's not okay. So the king is, of course, really ticked. One of, the, um, one of the servants there, a servant who had taken Esther under his wing, says, hey, you know, there's this, uh, there's this gallows that Haman prepared to hang Mordecai. It's just sitting there. What should we do with it? And, of course, the king is like, hey, let's hang Haman on it. So Haman has a really terrible fate. Um, and, uh, and then the next thing, so here's... here's <laughs> Here's the thing that I've decided about this. If I were to read just these chapters alone, I would think, okay, King Xerxes isn't the greatest human being, but he's a product of his culture and his time, and it sure does seem like he actually respects Esther and like cares for her. Chapter 8 disproves that theory, in my opinion, and here's why. Because Queen Esther, on that same day that Haman... And all of his household, by the way, because it's not just Haman, it's all of his children and his wife and all of his loved ones are killed. She, she goes to him, to the king, and says, okay, please place an order, like make an executive order to save my people. And he says, sorry, too bad. I've already you know, made an order that they can all die. So my hands are tied. <laughs> Darn. And then he says, but you know, if you want to, you can have Mordecai go write an order and I'll seal it. And I'm thinking... If he really, truly loved and respected Esther and her people, I would anticipate that his response would be, let's figure this out together, honey. Like, we're going to make sure, even if an executive order can't be overturned, there would be some effort he puts in. But he puts in zero effort. He says, I'll seal it if you guys write an order, but sorry, I can't do anything. And it reminds me a lot of, I don't know if any of you, well, I know Keenan watches The Handmaid's Tale, and I know Tom doesn't, because... (laughs) He doesn't like it. But I don't know if any of the rest of you watch The Handmaid's Tale, but um, it feels very much like that. In The Handmaid's Tale, um, the, the main character who is you know, a woman who has been stripped of all of her rights and has been forced into being basically a concubine um, to bear children for this um, leader in the community, 
this um, governmental leader. It's this really strange thing because it, for a couple of episodes, they paint this commander, this leader, as someone who has some compassion for her and is trying to be kind to her. Like that he does some things for her that are against the law just to like, it seems like just to help her feel like she's not alone, like there's someone on her side. And then the story just wallops you with the reality that nope, he is in power and if she even blinks wrong, he will have her punished, abused, potentially um, you know, sent away um, where she will die a slow and painful death at basically a work camp. There is no, that's not real love and that's what I see here. It's not true love, it's not true compassion. Um, it's, it's this sort of condescending, patronizing, puppeteer-like thing. Like, when it pleases me, I'll be kind to you. But make no mistake, I can wipe you away with a blink of my eye if I want. And that's what's going on here. <laughs> um, just to clarify, this is not a lovely romantic love story. So the king basically says, well, good luck. Try to figure it out. You know, I'll sign something if you write something. And, um, and Mordecai does. They write this order basically saying they can't overturn the other order, but they write this order saying all of the um, Jewish people are allowed to fight back when people attack them. So they can gather all their weapons and they can gather strongholds and they can fight back against the people who are going to attack them. And this order is scheduled to begin the exact same day that the order for them to all be wiped out was to begin. So basically, um, they just get to participate in the war instead of being exterminated. Um, and at the end of this chapter, this is chapter 8, Mordecai, you know, shares this news with all of the Jewish people and all of them celebrate. And I'm thinking, I can understand to an extent, like celebrating that, hey, you can fight back and you're, you're like, your fate isn't sealed. But also, I'm struck with such sadness that the celebration of this is even more bloodshed. That the celebration is now more people can be killed. Um, and then, interestingly, chapter 9 is the chapter that talks about all of the, the killing that happens um, and all of the people that are killed, including Haman's 10 sons. Um, and it says, you know, they killed, the Jewish people killed 500 men in the capital alone. Um, and then in all of the other cities, I think somewhere it says, I guess I didn't mark it, but somewhere it says that they killed something like, um, uh, I don't want to say a number if I can't find it. Thousands of people. We'll just say thousands and thousands of people are killed. Um, and at one point, Queen Esther begs the king to let them have one more day to kill people. And that's interesting to me. And that's where I see wounded, traumatized teenage girl in a terrible situation doing the best she can to survive. Um, because that's not something that a well-adjusted, um, healthy, in a robust, dynamic family environment young person says. And that's also not something I think that a 14-year-old, 15-year-old young girl comes up with on her own. To me, that is her, again, following, um, basically following the orders of probably Mordecai or another leader in her community. Um, and I just think how sad for this young woman to be in a position to beg for people to be murdered, um, which is what Haman had done not long before, right? But at least Haman was, as far as we're aware, a full-grown adult. Like, this is just a young girl basically being puppeted. Um, oh, and here it is. So, in total, 
the rural Jew Jewish people killed 75,000 of their enemies. Ha. Huh. Okay. Um, so I'm not going to celebrate that part of the story. Um, and the other interesting piece is that this is the longest chapter in the book. So the longest chapter in the book is about all of the murders um, and the celebration of that. Um, and then there is, um, there is a bit that talks about the origin of Purim, which we'll talk about more next week. Um, but the other interesting thing is that chapters 1 through 8 talk about Esther's part in the story. Once we get to chapter 9 and 10, where the culmination of the story takes place, the Jewish people are spared and they kill their enemies, Esther almost disappears. Like There's like two mentions of her in this. All of it is Mordecai and King Xerxes. And so once, even that to me is so objectifying, once Esther's role in the story is done, now it's back to the men, Mordecai and, and Xerxes. In chapter 10, this, this actually kind of angers me, <laughs> chapter 10 ends with saying what happens to Mordecai and Xerxes, not a mention of Esther. We don't know. Maybe she got banished some other time for some other thing. We don't know. All we know is that Mordecai became second in command. Uh, and, and he was highly revered, and he worked for the prosperity of his people. And that's it. And so the, um, the two things I want to say about this section of the story, and then I want to hear your thoughts, are, number one, boy, does this make me realize how much we all need Jesus. <laughs> because... There's a point in the story where it says that um, when Haman was executed, King Xerxes' anger was, what does it say? King Xerxes' anger was satisfied or satiated or something. And I think, well, that's exactly the reason that I don't believe in penal substitutionary theory, which is the idea that the reason Jesus had to die was because God's anger had to be satiated by blood. I don't think God is like King Xerxes. I don't think God needs blood in order to love. Um, but that's how King Xerxes is painted, and that's sort of the analogy that we, we have created in the church for many, many years of who God is. Um, and boy, do we all need Jesus. If, if what it looks like for us to celebrate is, yay, now I'm not dying, my enemies are dying, I think, boy... <laughs> Thank God, truly, that Jesus came and changed all of that and turned it around and said, you have heard it said, love those who love you and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love even your enemies. Um, because, as they say, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. If the entire thing is about, um, if the entire story or if the entire world's trajectory or even the trajectory of theology is about the right people winning and all of the others being decimated, then to me that can't be a God of love. And I believe to the core of my being in a God of love. And this story um, highlights for me how much the world needs Jesus and how much the world needs people who are able to show the sort of love that Jesus showed when he didn't you know, try to rile up his disciples to attack those who were going to put him to death. He didn't. Um, and he didn't um, tell people to fight back. In fact, he yelled at people for fighting back because it's not about bloodlust. It's not about um, one group of people overcoming another group or um, having power over. It's about all of us 
loving one another and working together and empowering others. Um, and so when I read this story, um, or when it was read to me as a child, and the version I heard of it was this romanticized, and Esther, you know, the king falls in love with her, and she saves her people, and yay, celebrate. But I can't read this and celebrate, because I can't read this and celebrate that almost 100,000 people were murdered. Um, to me, that doesn't feel... That's why this isn't the end of the story. Like, in, in some ways, theologically, um, as Keenan pointed to last week, this is sort of a cosmic rematch for a battle that happened earlier in the Old Testament where King Saul was supposed to kill a king, and he didn't, and that king escaped and then had children, and Haman is a direct descendant of that. So this is like a cosmic rematch in some ways. And, like, I get from a narrative perspective that that's, you know, you're wrapping up a storyline. But the storyline's not wrapped up here because there's still bloodlust and there's still attack your enemies. Um, So, so that's what. I, so that's where I'm a little bit sad that doing this, this time um, reading this differently has left me with uh, one of the few books that I used to be really excited about about a power to women. Now I just feel really sad about, to be honest. Um, and I think that that's it for now because I think you know next week we'll get into more of the themes. So you know at this point let's. Um, Let's talk about it. Let's talk about Esther. Let's talk about this story um, and what stood out to you. Um, anything you think that you would take away from this? Um, 